Recently, I had lunch with a guy who told me about a struggle that he was having for quite a while with one particular area of life, with one particular habitual sin. He said he knew that he was a sinner. He said he knew he was fallen. And he told me that he thought he would keep committing this one particular sin. He said to me he was going to keep committing this one particular sin because he was a sinner and because his nature was evil and there was really nothing he could do about it because of what a sinner he was. I had to say by the end of the lunch I was so depressed I wanted to bang my head on the table. His question was basically, why do I struggle like this? And what went through my head at that time and since, as he told me about this struggle that he had, that I understood that his system, his way of thinking, was perfectly designed to achieve the results he was getting. You see, he he is convinced he is a sinner. He is convinced he's going to sin. He has no hope against sin. He believes his basic nature is sinning. And then he wonders why he keeps sinning. You see what I mean? And what was so depressing to me was that this man told me he'd been a Christian for many years, been going to church for many years. A little while later... I had a meeting with a number of ministers. This was just before Christmas. And one of them was telling me that uh, he was preparing for a new series of sermons for the new year. And he was going to say to his people that they weren't reading their Bibles enough. They weren't praying enough. They weren't being spiritual enough. He said he was going to tell his people they needed to do more. They needed to read their Bibles more, pray more, be more spiritual. Now, as I listened to him, I just thought to myself, basically what he was giving them is just more mores. And telling them that if they did this, then God would be happy with them. Now, I wasn't sure then, I'm not sure now that this approach was or is the right one. Don't get me wrong, it's not that praying and reading the Bible is bad. Of course they're not. It wasn't so much what he was saying as it was the place he was coming from. The beginning premise seemed to be that we are bad and don't do enough. And if we are made to feel guilty enough about that, then we will change our behavior. Now, I personally don't think this is what Jesus had in mind or what Jesus actually taught. One of Jesus' greatest anger points was actually reserved for religious leaders who weighed people down with guilt and shame. He said to a group of Bible scholars and teachers, you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves do not lift one finger to help them. And he goes on to say that it is possible for, for religious leaders to actually get in the way of people entering into the life of God. So what is the message of Jesus? 
How should people feel about themselves? Now, have you ever heard a Christian say, well, I'm just a sinner? Well, I want to say, I can't find one place in the teachings of Jesus, or the Bible for that matter, where we are to identify ourselves first and foremost as sinners. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't sin. I mean, that's obvious. In the book of James, it is written like this. We all stumble in many ways. We all make choices to live outside of how God created us to live. We have all come short. But, you know, the first Christians insisted that when we become Christians, a profound change occurs in our fundamental identity in who we are at the core of our being, in who we are first and foremost before we are anything else. Those first Christians were convinced that in identifying with Jesus' death on the cross, something within us dies. And they called this person who died the old, the old man or the old woman. They were referring by these phrases to the person we were before we had the spiritual new birth. Now, this idea of death and rebirth is not a new idea. It has been around in almost every religious tradition since people first started talking about these kind of things. But the first Christians believed that this idea had been lived out in a new and unique way in Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul, the great apostle, put it like this in the book of Colossians. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this old nature of mine, the one that was constantly pulling me down, causing me to live in ways I wasn't created to live, that old nature of mine has died. And no matter how many times that old nature raises its ugly head, pretends to be alive, it is dead. And not only did that old person die, but I have been given a new nature. Again, Paul writes in the book of Colossians, you have been raised with Christ. I have this new life, this new identity that has been given to me. I'm taking on the identity of Christ And Paul continues, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So those first Christians kept insisting that something so transformational was happening in the lives of the followers of Jesus that they could refer to their old lives as the life we once lived. Don't get me wrong, it's not that we are perfect now or that we will never have to struggle or that the old person won't come back from time to time, is that this new way of life involves a constant conscious decision to keep dying to the old so that we can live in the new. And Paul describes this as Christ being in our lives. And Paul goes so far as to insist in another letter that we find in the New Testament that if we are living this new kind of transforming experience with Christ in which we are taking on a new identity, we are literally now a new creation. I am not who I was. I am a new creation. 
I am in Christ. And when God looks at me, God sees Christ because I am in him. God's view of me is Christ, and Christ is perfect. And this is why Paul goes on to say, again in the book of Colossians, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, did you catch that word in the middle, the word holy? Now, notice what Paul says, not going to be holy someday, not wouldn't, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice if you were holy, but instead you're a mess. But he says, holy. Holy means pure, without blemish, unstained. And in these passages, we are being told who we are now. The issue, in, the issue then isn't beating myself up over the things I am not doing or the things I am doing poorly. The issue is my learning who this person is, who God keeps insisting I already am. Notice some words again from Paul in the letter to the Philippians. Let us live up to what we have already attained. I think what Paul means there is that there is this, there is this person who we already are in God's eyes. And we're learning to live like it is true. Now, this is all an issue of identity. It's letting what God says about us shape what we believe about ourselves. And that's why shame has no place whatever in the Christian experience. It's simply, I think, against all that Jesus is for. As the writer to the Romans puts it, the Paul puts it, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No shame, no list of what has been held against us, no record of wrongs. It's simply been done away with. It's no longer an issue. Bringing it, bringing it up is pointless. Beating myself up is pointless. Beating others up about who and what they are not is going in the wrong direction, I think. It's working against the purposes of God. And God is not interested in shaming people. God wants people to see who they really are in Christ. Again, Paul, let us live up to what we have already attained. I am not who I was. You are not who you were. The old person going away, the new person here. Now, reborn, rebirthed, remade, reconciled, renewed. Jesus puts it this way, you are in me and I am in you. So when those first Christians went all over the Roman Empire telling people the Jesus message, they insisted that people can live a new life, counting themselves dead to sin but alive to God. And when we stumble, as we do, and we may fall back into those old patterns, as we do, we need to call them what they are old patterns, old ways, old habits of the old person. And we need to recognise that something new has happened and is happening inside of us. You see, Jesus said that as this new reality about who we are in God takes over our hearts and lives, minds and actions, we are crossing over from death to life. He called this new life, this new kind of life, eternal life. 
And for Jesus, eternal life wasn't a state of being for the future that we would enter into somewhere, somewhere else at some other time. It's a quality of life that starts now. Eternal life, then, is a certain kind of life that I am living more and more in the here and now, and that will go on forever. Eternal life means that I am living more and more in connection with God, and I will live connected with God forever. And this has huge implications, I think, for when I do stumble, when I sin, and when that old person comes back from the dead for a few moments. I admit it, I confess it, I thank God that I am forgiven, I make amends with anyone who who has been affected by my actions, and then I move on. And I can do this not because sin isn't serious, but because I'm taking seriously who God says I am. The point isn't my failure. It's God's success in making me into the person he originally intended me to be. It's God's strength, not mine. It's God's power, not mine. So what does this mean for the Christian life? Well, to begin with, we need to recognize afresh, I think, that Christians are people learning who they are in Christ. We are being taught about our new identity. And do you see how deeply this new identity affects the life of the individual and the community? I read somewhere recently uh, a fascinating comment, and it was this. A well-known Christian teacher said this. If people were taught more about who they are, he's obviously talking about Christians, they wouldn't have to be told what to do. It would come naturally. You see, what I think he was saying is this, that when we see religious communities spending most of their time trying to convince people not to sin, we are seeing a community that has missed the point. The point isn't sin management. The point is who we are now in Christ. Often, communities of believers in the New Testament are identified as saints. It's a word that comes up again and again, particularly in the writings of Paul. And the word saints is a translation of the Greek word hagios, which means holy or set apart ones, those who are in Christ. And they are in Christ not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done. There is nothing we can do and there is nothing we could ever have done to earn God's favor. What we can do is trust that what God keeps insisting is true about us is actually true. Let me take this a little bit further, as again I think the Apostle Paul does. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unable to do anything about our condition, while we were helpless, while we were unaware of just how bad the situation was, Jesus died And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for everybody. Everybody, everywhere. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. Jesus said that when he was lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. All people, everywhere. So everybody's sins were on the cross with Jesus. So this reality, this forgiveness, this reconciliation is true for everybody. And Paul insisted that when Jesus died on the cross, 
he was reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to God. All things everywhere. And this reality then isn't something we make true about ourselves by doing something. It is already true. And our choice is to live in this new reality. Or the alternative is we just cling to the reality of our own making. Now, if there is the life of heaven and we can choose it, then there is also another way. A a way of living out of sync with how God created us to be and to live. And the word for this is hell. A way, a place, a realm absent of how God desires things to be. And we can bring heaven to earth or we can bring hell to earth, it seems to me. And for Jesus, heaven and hell were present realities, ways of living we can enter into the here and now. And Jesus talked very little of life beyond this one because he understood that this life, the life beyond this one, is a continuity of all, a continuity, a continuation of all the kinds of choices we make in the here and now. And in one sense, for Jesus, the question wasn't how do I get into heaven, but how do I bring heaven here? The question wasn't how do I get in there, but how do I get there here? And for Jesus, this new kind of life in him is not about escaping this world, but about making this world a better place in the here and now. And the goal for Jesus isn't to get into heaven. The goal is to get heaven here. And Jesus wants his followers, that's you and I, to bring heaven, not hell, to earth. And this has been God's intention for people since the beginning. And the entire movement of the Bible is of a God who wants to be here with his people. The church is described as being the temple of God. And how does the Bible end? Well, it ends with God coming down and taking up residence here on earth with his people. And true spirituality then is not about escaping this world to some other place where we, where we will be forever. A Christian is not someone who expects to spend forever in heaven there, wherever there is. A Christian is someone who anticipates spending forever here in the new heaven that comes to earth. And so the goal isn't escaping this world, but making this world the kind of place that God can come to. And God is remaking us into the kind of people who can do this kind of work. So let me try and conclude and bring all these thoughts together. I think we need to embrace and recognize our true identity, who we are in Christ. And allow this new awareness to transform our lives. This is what Jesus has in mind. And that is what it means to bring heaven to earth. Many of you remember that I, uh, when I came back from America, I told you a story of, of how I was having breakfast with some friends from the church where I was based in Arkansas. We were finishing our breakfast in a restaurant and uh, I noticed that the waitress brought our bill to us and then a few minutes came back and took the bill away and then brought it back again. 
She placed the bill on the table and said to me, somebody in the restaurant has paid for you all, you're all set. And then she walked away. Now I have to admit that I had the strangest feeling sitting there. The feeling was one, I think, of helplessness, I think. There's nothing I could do. It had already been taken care of. The bill had been paid. To insist, to insist on paying would have been pointless. All I could do was trust that what she had said was true and then live in the life, in the light of that truth, which then meant getting up and leaving the restaurant with my friends. My acceptance of what she said gave me a choice to live like it was true or to create my own reality in which the bill was not paid. And this, I think, is our invitation from God to trust that we don't owe anything, to trust that something is already true about us, something has already been done, something has been there all along, to trust that grace has paid the bill.